0: I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, violent crime has plummeted over the last 25 years, which has completely changed cities.
1: As violence falls, we have causal evidence that it doesn't just improve life expectancy, but it improves kids' ability to learn. It improves kids' ability to find jobs in early adulthood.
0: Then, despite what you've seen at the beach, sand is actually pretty scarce, and it's getting more scarce all the time.
2: The stuff that's easy to get, just like with oil, the stuff that's close to the surface, close to where we need it to be, is mostly gone.
0: And finally, the surprising world of mosquitoes on the subway.
3: So these underground mosquitoes that live in in one of the metro lines is, is different, genetically different, from the same species of underground mosquito that lives in a different subway line.
0: That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1960s, Americans flicked on their TV screens and saw what often felt like a wave of violence sweeping through the country. The Watts riots in L.A., major unrest at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and on it went.
2: Four days of rioting, looting, and arson rocked the city of Detroit in the worst outbreak of urban racial violence this year. Entire blocks of homes become infernos. At least 36 are killed, more than 2,000 injured, and damage topped the half-billion mark.
0: Lots of riots had specific triggers, like the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Here's a CBS report on riots in Washington, D.C. the day after King was killed in 1968.
1: Three deaths have been reported in the Washington rioting so far. There are no details yet on the circumstances surrounding them. More than 350 persons have been treated for injuries, among them, several policemen and firemen.
0: And what many Americans worried was happening, a spike in crime, was indeed happening. Murder rates are often measured as the number of murders per 100,000 people. In 1960, there were about five murders per 100,000 people. By the mid-1970s, that number had skyrocketed to 10. It was a huge shift. And the murder rate stayed high through the 1970s, through the 80s. In the early 90s, it was still holding around 10. And remember, back in 1960, it had been at about 5. People wondered what horrors the year 2000 or 2010 would bring. And then something strange started to happen. In the mid-90s, the murder rate began to fall. And it kept falling. It fell so low, it hit 1960 levels. And by 2014, it appeared to go even lower than that, which led to some crucial questions. How did society change in a way that made crime fall? And what does that change tell us about the future? Patrick Sharkey is a professor at NYU's sociology department and author of the book, Uneasy Peace The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. Patrick, thanks for being here.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, you know, crime going down, as you write about, is not just a numbers thing. Um, It's a cultural change. So why, in your view, did the crime rate start falling in the 90s and just keep going?
1: Well, I think there's lots of evidence that in that period, in the early 1990s, crime was really seen as a national crisis. And, And crime had been high for a long time, as you mentioned. But it was at that moment that Democrats kind of took on crime and violence as a central part of their platform, whereas the Republicans had always claimed that issue as their own. And the nation as a whole mobilized at that moment to deal with what was seen as a national crisis. And, and so at that time, in the, in the early 1990s, it's really the point at which a whole bunch of changes happened. We expanded police forces. So that came about because of President Clinton's crime bill. Uh, mass incarceration continued to rise. Then a whole bunch of other changes occurred. Private security guards proliferated. And what I argue in the book is that residents of the most disadvantaged communities, the places hit hardest by violence, also started to mobilize to deal with the problem of violent crime in their own communities. And as all of these changes kind of uh, happened at the same time, our urban streets changed. And, And the argument I make in the book is that that's really the explanation for why violence started to fall on a large scale at that moment.
0: So, so you kind of identify three things there. One is the infusion of money in some ways, which is like hiring more police officers. The other was um, Clinton's crime bill. Uh, so that's a sort of legislative approach. Um, and, and the other is this idea of people in the communities themselves getting involved. What precipitated that? Why at that moment did people say, I'm going to form an organization that's going to try to help stem violence in this neighborhood?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So a big part of the answer is that the nonprofit sector had been starved for a long time, and, and there just weren't state and federal funds that were devoted to local community organizations. So with the reemergence of, of funding for local community organizations, that played a big role, mm-hmm. and, and communities all of a sudden had access to, to new funding. But really larger than that, it was a mobilization. It was a kind of recognition that this problem had, had reached catastrophic levels. And in the communities that were hit hardest, it was a crisis. It was an actual crisis. And right. so residents got together. They had been doing this for a long time, but there was really this expansion of local community organizations, mostly nonprofits, that came together during that time. And in the book, we present evidence. This just hasn't been looked at as a primary factor causing the crime drop. But we generate national evidence to, to make the causal case that this expansion of local community organizations actually played a causal role in reducing violence and should be seen as a central change that happened during that period.
0: And when you talk about the uh, organizations that have the greatest capacity to control violence but have been uh, historically underfunded, what kinds of organizations are those So those are
1: community organizations that do lots of different things. Those are boys and girls clubs. Those are substance abuse addiction treatment programs. Those are prisoner reentry programs. Those are after school programs. So these are all organizations that rely heavily on government funding to do their job. These are the kinds of organizations that provide what my colleague Eric Kleinberg calls the social infrastructure of a community. They stabilize a community. They ensure that a neighborhood is not going to go downhill even when it goes through a bout of joblessness or concentrated poverty. These are the types of organizations that are crucial to making sure that violence doesn't emerge, and we've just never provided the investment to make sure that these types of institutions and organizations are sustained over time, that people know they're going to be there in 10 years, that they have the resources to do their jobs effectively.
0: This might seem like a strange question, but in what ways uh, do you feel like the reduction in crime and the policies attached to that, the legislative policies, the hiring of more police, the putting more people in prison, in what ways do you feel like those things improve communities and in what ways do you feel like those things harmed communities?
1: Yeah, well, I think the most important consequence is that this collection of programs, uh, there's really strong evidence that together this set of programs reduce violence. And the benefits of the crime drop are enormous. So a big chunk of the book just focuses on the consequences of the crime drop, where I show very clearly that the most substantial benefits went to the most disadvantaged segments of the population. That's in terms of education, economic mobility, life expectancy, and so forth. Now, the other side of that is that the greatest costs of these changes that took place have also been experienced by the most disadvantaged segments of the community. And those costs have come in the form of aggressive or violent policing, uh, intensive surveillance, and the continued rise of of mass incarceration. So, you know, what I'd argue is that the crime drop has generated tremendous benefits, but the methods that we got there, the methods that we used to get there have also generated substantial costs. So then the question is, how do we continue to reduce crime, but how do we do it in a different way? How do we develop a different set of
0: methods? Hmm. Um, One thing that you write about that really struck me is that uh, most Americans are not aware of this incredible drop in crime, that homicide rates uh, were cut in half between the 1990s and 2014. You say most Americans don't trust government statistics on this. Like when they're asked, they say, I, you know, I don't think that crime has dropped uh, to that extent. And so in some ways, this thing that you're chronicling, this thing that you've spent your life working on, a lot of people don't even believe the thing is happening. How do you like think about that and square that?
1: Yeah, that's the challenge of, of of studying and really generating public debates on on crime and violence Cause most people are not direct victims, so they right. they develop a sense of how much violence is out there based on the media, based on politicians, based on what they see when they look out into the world. And as we know, we've seen very, you know, intentional and conscious distortions of how much violence is is out there, and it doesn't just come from you know President Trump. It, it comes from um, advocates on the left who, who want to maintain an urgency for dealing with violence. It comes from politicians on the right who don't want to acknowledge when, when the behavior of the poor has actually changed in a very tangible and, and visible way. So there are big challenges in uh, just presenting empirical evidence on how much violence is out there. We actually started a website, AmericanViolence.org, that was designed to deal with this And the goal is to just get evidence out there in a very easily accessible and comprehensive and accurate way so that cities,
0: we know how much violence is out there, we know how violence is changing. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Patrick Sharkey, a professor of sociology at NYU. He's the author of the new book, Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next War on Violence. When you look across the country, What cities or what places, I guess it doesn't have to be cities, have seen the biggest drops in crime?
1: The biggest drops have come in, you know, well-known places. New York used to have over 2,200 murders every year. There were 290 last year. I mean, this scale of change is just shocking. It's stunning. But other cities have experienced similar changes. Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Dallas, and Fort Worth. These are places... That were intensely violent. D.C. used to have the highest murder rate in in the country. It has fallen by 75 percent or more uh, since the early 1990s. So the most visible changes that have taken place are present in L.A. and D.C. and and Mm -hmm. New York. But there are a whole bunch of cities around the country where violence has fallen by more than half and where the cities have really started to transform. These were intensely violent places. In fact, about half of major cities in, in, across the country in the early 1990s had extreme levels of violence, levels of violence over 20 murders per 100,000 people, and that has fallen to a, a very small number of cities at this point.
0: Um, Chicago, of course, gets a lot of national attention for murders. Is it an outlier here or, or is it not?
1: Well, Chicago has the most murders, um, and that's part of the reason why they get so much attention. And things have changed for the worse over the past few years. They've had a a large increase uh, in murders. So I think that's a big part of the reason that we focus on on Chicago. But they certainly don't have the highest murder rate. Cities like New Orleans, St. Louis has the highest murder rate in the country right now. Mm. So there are other smaller cities where I think the problem is more intense. And Chicago is a great example because... So over the past few years, they've had a horrible increase in in murder. And even in the past 12 months, there's been so much attention toward Chicago that most people don't realize that the level of violence has actually fallen pretty sharply in the past year in, in Chicago. And there are about 100 fewer people murdered this year than there were over the same time period last year. And that that fact is just lost. Like, Chicago has actually been the city where violence has fallen the most this year. And so, you know... You can tell how much the conversation is distorted. Now, I'm not saying Chicago has solved its problem. It still has a crisis on its hand. Um, But there actually has been an improvement, and you would never guess that based on the coverage of
0: Chicago. Hmm. Talk a little bit about when a city changes, as we've seen – you know, the the, uh, rates of violence in a city changes, as we have seen just happen in this incredible way in the last – just about quarter century now – How does the city start to look different and feel different when you walk through it? I mean, just, you know, take me to a city and talk about how it's different now than maybe it once was.
1: Yeah, well, the city I know best is New York. You know, um, I I tell a story at the start of the book about a park in the Bronx that used to be, it was in the Bonfire of the Vanities, featured as as a place where, you know, no one, no court officers would go, even if, if... uh, they were armed. No one would dare enter that park. And I start the book by talking about what it looks like now. And you know, it's it's not like the problems have gone away. The problems of poverty are still in America's major cities, in New York as well. But they don't come with violence automatically anymore. So one of the major features of urban poverty back from the 70s through the 1990s was that if you were poor and lived in a central city. You were constantly exposed to the threat of violence. That's still present in a lot of cities and a lot of neighborhoods, but it's no longer present all over the country. There are lots of places, like New York, where poverty no longer comes with the constant threat of violence. So it just changes daily life. It changes the nature of public space. It means that families are willing to invest in a neighborhood. Parents are willing to have their kids out and enjoy public playgrounds, parks, parks, libraries, and so forth. Teachers are more willing to invest in a school district. Business owners are more likely to set up shop. So these are some of the mechanisms that lead to the the findings uh, that I show in the book, where as violence falls, we have causal evidence that it doesn't just improve life expectancy, but it improves kids' ability to learn. Mm-hmm. It improves kids' ability to find jobs in early adulthood and to move upward out of poverty as they, as they leave adulthood. So I really argue that it transforms the nature of public space and really allows us to live the ideal of what city life should be, where public life is, is a collective experience where people come together and trust each other and feel welcomed in public spaces. That's only possible when violence goes away.
0: Um, I talked about – we started by talking about the murder rate going from five out of every 100,000 people in, in 1960 to 10 about in the, in the 1970s, so doubling. Then it gets cut in half by half by 2014. Um, But you say in the last couple of years, right, it's ticked up a little bit. What do you see happening? Well,
1: we've had a model for dealing with violent crime for the past 50 years uh, that has relied heavily on the police and the prison. That's been our response to deal with violence. Around 2014, that model started to break down. And it broke down because, A, the violent crime rate was at a historic low point, but, B, because people started seeing what was going on. People started noticing mass incarceration. And I'll some know, of Michelle, that, I was
0: going to say, some of it was technology to some degree. Like some of it was people seeing videos of things happening that. Yeah, exactly. Ha- like in 1994, it would have been much harder. I and mean, people did see Rodney King. I mean, there were incidents of it, but the technology was so much more widespread.
1: I think that's right. I think people who do not live in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods like myself never physically saw what was going on on a daily basis there and the extremes of what was going on, people being shot. And so as those images became uh, visible to a wider section of the public, uh, as the Black Lives Matter movement formed and became one of the most successful social movements we've seen in decades, as Michelle Alexander wrote her book, the uh, the new Jim Crow and mass incarceration became more well known. I think there was widespread understanding that something had to change. Now, what's happened in the years since is that cities have really struggled to develop a new model. So no, no new model of how to deal with violent crime has formed. I think for the past 50 years, our, the default model has been to focus on punishment as a solution to violence. I think we now have sufficient evidence to propose a new approach, an approach that focuses on investment. And when I talk about investment, I don't just mean investment in community residents and organizations. That has to be central, but that's not it. I'm also talking about investment in police departments so that there is actually a pathway forward for changing the way that law enforcement interacts with residents. We can't expect police departments who have been told to dominate public spaces by any means necessary for the last few decades We can't expect them to just change overnight without training, without new efforts to understand how to communicate better with residents. So the broad answer is that I think we we need a mindset shift, a shift from a focus on punishment toward a focus on investment. What makes me concerned is that a lot of what goes on in local neighborhoods is, you know, it's a very local process, but it's driven by funding going to states and the federal government. So... When we have a $1.5 trillion tax cut, well, at some point, that's going to trickle down and affect the organizations that play the greatest role in confronting violence. So really, when I look over the long term, I worry that that the stability of, of those groups and those institutions and those organizations, and I don't just mean nonprofits, I mean schools, I mean law enforcement agencies, I mean religious congregations. These types of organizations are, are going to be compromised uh, at some point, and that's my biggest
0: concern looking forward. Patrick Sharkey is a professor of sociology at NYU and author of the book, Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life, and The Next, War on Violence. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We've talked a lot about crime rates in various cities around the country, You can check out the numbers for yourself at Patrick Sharkey's website, AmericanViolence.org. There are lots of true stories of famous and daring robberies. Generally, though, thieves are after the usual suspects. Diamonds, rubies, Monets, da Vinci's, maybe a few gold bars. But as it happens, their horizons have now expanded.
2: People are just stealing it from wherever they can get it that's, you know, close to somewhere where they can sell it.
0: If you're on the hunt for some of today's most brazen, violent, destructive thieves, you can find them making off with something that's basically everywhere, something that might seem completely worthless. But be assured, it's worth a lot.
2: The stuff that's really getting stolen, that's really causing all the problem, is just common, ordinary sand that's being used for construction, and the reason is just volume, because you need... I mean, to build just an average house, you need something like 400 tons of sand. Right? To build a school, you're talking thousands of tons of sand.
0: In a new book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization, Vince Beiser argues that sand has become one of the most important and fought over commodities in the world. And if you want to know why there's pretty much a one-word answer.
2: Urbanization. Basically, sand is what our cities are made out of, right? Concrete. Every concrete building in the world, every shopping mall, an office block, an apartment building, is made out of concrete, which is just sand and gravel stuck together with cement. And all the roads that connect all those buildings also made mostly of sand. All the windows in those buildings also made of sand.
0: And in developing areas, China, India, Africa, cities are growing so fast We're now adding an average of eight New York cities a year to the globe.
2: So basically to get the sand to build Shanghai and Vientiane and and Lagos, people are stripping riverbeds bare, stripping beaches bare, lake bottoms bare, literally down to the rock, causing massive environmental damage. So in response... In many places, governments, authorities are trying to stop that and to put controls to, you know, limit the damage that's being caused by sand mining. That, in turn, has just created a giant black market in sand literally run in India, where it's probably at its worst. They call them the Sand Mafia. I kid you not.
0: Beiser says... That mafia has killed hundreds of people, including journalists, police officers, and all sorts of other folks.
2: So I went to investigate the killing of this one particular guy, a man named Paliram Chohan, who lived in a village uh, just about an hour south of Delhi. And what happened there was a local sand mafia, a bunch of thieves, basically, came in and took over about 200 acres of his village's land, ripped up all the crops, stripped away all the topsoil, and started digging out the sand to sell to builders in Delhi. Well, this guy tried to organize, you know, uh, the village to get this to stop, and he kept complaining to the police and to the courts and to the media and anyone who would listen to try to get this to stop. One of these guys said to him, you're starting to really annoy us, cut it out, or we're going to kill you. About a week later, three guys burst into his house and shot him dead in his bed.
0: So how did we get here, to a place of sand mafias and killings and thefts, How did the thing which is most abundant on the crust of the earth, something that seems so ordinary, so cheap, how did it become an object of desire? Well, like lots of things in life, it's an accident of timing. Back around 1900, a guy named Edward Ransom was working on building things with concrete. But concrete wasn't super attractive, and at first, he just couldn't get anybody to bite.
2: People were like, well, why would we do that? We have bricks, we have, you know, stone. We have why would we try this crazy new material? Right. So he had a heart. you know, he he pushed it and pushed it and managed to get a few buildings built. And he had a few buildings in place when all of a sudden the San Francisco earthquake hits 1906. The mm. city is completely devastated. Massive earthquake, followed by a three-day fire. Most of the city is burned literally to the ground. But when the smoke cleared, there You know, standing amid the ashes were, guess what? Edward Ransom's concrete buildings, Mm. because concrete is, you know, basically fireproof. Right. And that really got a lot of attention uh, around the country and around the world. People really started to look at this stuff and go, wow, this this stuff really works. Let's start using it. And from there, it just exploded with, you know, at a a speed that is just mind-boggling.
0: One of the things you actually said that's striking and one of the things you write about is that just after the San Francisco earthquake, Thomas Edison is talking. And somebody's like, what's your next amazing invention going to be? And he says concrete houses because basically he sees them as kind of miraculous.
2: Exactly. I mean, people were – I mean, it was kind of the digital technology at the time. People were just – starry-eyed over this new material that seemed like it could do anything. Right. And Thomas Edison was completely in love with it, decided he was going to build not only concrete houses, but concrete furniture, concrete couches, concrete pianos.
0: A concrete couch sounds fantastic.
2: Right? Super comfy.
0: Who doesn't want to unwind (laughs) on your concrete couch at the end of the day?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, pluck out a tune on the concrete piano when you're up for it. (laughs) So he didn't get too far with that, but he did, uh, you know, he did build some prototypes. He did have a concrete piano that he sort of toured around. But it just kind of shows you how, you know, over the moon people were right. with this stuff. Because you think about it, it's so much easier to work with than basically any other building material that people have ever created. It's, it's a liquid. You pour it into whatever shape you want. You leave it alone. You come back and it's solid stone.
0: Right and it's not just buildings it's the national highway system I mean it's just pervasive in ways that it's hard for us to even kind of wrap our minds around
2: Exactly it's it's the highways it's roads it's dams it's airport runways I mean it's you know it is literally the f- concrete is really the foundation of the modern world like right. you could not have the world we live in without concrete
0: And if that wasn't enough in terms of saying, like, how important sand is to us, like, that it's this crucial element of concrete, it's also the foundation of making glass. So when you think about, like, you know, H.J. Heinz and the very beginnings of the packaged food industry or delivering milk to people or wine bottles or beer bottles or Coca-Cola, those things, like, you could not have done any of those things without sand.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And it turns out that the manufacturing glass, right around the same time that concrete was really, you know, sort of coming into its own, the same a very similar thing was happening with mass manufactured glass, right? Glass has been around for thousands of years. People have known how to make it, you know, sort of crude forms of glass since at least ancient Egypt. But again, it was, it was during the Industrial Revolution, late 1800s. There was a man in particular named Michael Owens, who worked for a glass manufacturer in Toledo, Ohio, who invented a machine, the world's first machine for mass manufacturing bottles. And this made them the biggest bottle manufacturer in the world and made possible, just like you said, it completely revolutionized how we eat and drink. Because all of a sudden, in a way that was never possible before, you could put beer or ketchup or peanut butter or whatever you wanted in these containers and ship it across the country and keep it on your shelf for, you know, weeks and months, completely changed the way that we eat.
0: Is the sand that's used in America, so like if a school was being built in, you know, in some town in the U.S., does that sand come from America or is it being potentially stolen from somewhere in India or whatever? Yeah.
2: Usually it comes from somewhere close by. As soon as you start having to transport it, the cost of using it goes way up. And this is why, a big part of why it's such a problem is because you really need to get your sand from close to where you're building, whatever it is you're building. And if you are building a city of 20 million people like Shanghai, you, you need an awful lot of sand from very close by. So it means you're really st- you know, tearing up basically all the sand that's in the vicinity.
0: And, and I assume that ruins like farmer's land. And I mean, that means you're tearing up the areas around Shanghai to build this vast city. I would guess that the people around Shanghai and the countryside around there aren't like thrilled that you're dredging their rivers and polluting them and whatever.
2: Exactly. So, I mean, in, in the specific case of Shanghai, so Shanghai has just exploded in the past 20, 30 years, they have added since the year 2000, Shanghai has built more skyscrapers than there are in all of New York City.
0: Wow. Just since 2000.
2: Just since 2000. Like they are not kidding around. Right, <laughs> right. And most of that sand came from the Yangtze River, came from the bottom of the Yangtze River, which is one of the most important waterways in China. And they did so much damage, like they were wiped, killing so many fish and causing so many riverbanks to collapse. People's homes and, and, and farmers' fields were collapsing into the river that they've basically banned sand mining on the Yangtze River and moved it up a little further to uh, a lake called Lake Poyang, which is probably the biggest sand mine in the world right now. And that, of course, is causing all kinds of problems. It's a big, there are all kinds of endangered species that live there, endangered birds and rare manatees that are really under threat because of the sand mining.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Vince Weiser, author of the book, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. Do you worry that we're running out of sand?
2: I worry about it a lot, absolutely. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's happening. It's kind of similar to what's happening with oil and gas in a way. I mean, of course, there's a lot of sand in the world, right? There's more of it than anything else. And we're not going to literally, like, you know, use up the very last grain anytime soon. You know, it's not going to be like Mad Max with, you know, people fighting over the last, you know, pile of sand somewhere. But the stuff that's easy to get, just like with oil, the stuff that's close to the surface, close to where we need it to be, is mostly gone. And we're having to go further and further and really do more and more damage very often to the environment to get at the stuff that's left. And in a lot of places, like here in the United States... There's plenty of sand. For instance, where I live in Los Angeles, there's plenty of sand, construction sand right nearby, but it's now underneath the city, right? The city has spread out and covered.
0: They're not going to bulldoze houses to get sand.
2: Exactly. But that means that we have to go further and further afield and truck in sand from, you know, 50, 100, 150 miles away to get the sand to, to build buildings in Los Angeles. And that you know, creates more truck right. traffic, more uh, greenhouse gas emissions, mm-hmm. all of that bad stuff. I mean, it's, to give you an idea, it's sand is in such short supply here in Los Angeles that we actually import some from Canada.
0: Wow. Which is not close to Los Which Angeles. Which is not close at all. <laughs> Last time I checked. <laughs> so talk for just a second about uh, the environmental damage because... Um, one of the striking things about what you wrote is uh, how widespread these effects are. Whether it's an effect on coral reefs or certain kinds of dolphins being being hurt by our craving for sand, just just talk a little bit about the dominoes that have fallen and and yeah, the widespread environmental effects here.
2: So one of the number one problems is when we suck up that sand. The easiest place to get that sand, the best place, is from. River bottoms. The sand down there, it's nice and clean, it's well-sorted, it's washed, and it's really easy to get. All you need to do, float a boat out onto the middle of a, of a river, drop a big suction pipe, basically a big straw down to the bottom of the river, and just suck up hundreds and thousands of tons of sand. This is done all over the world. The problem with it is, you know, if you're any kind of creature or plant that's living on the bottom of that river, you're gone right? Your whole habitat has just been destroyed. Also, when you stir up all kinds of sand and muck and other stuff that clouds up the water for what can be a very long time, that can also suffocate fish and other things that are living in the water. It also blocks sunlight from getting through the water to plants and to coral reefs, right? Underwater plants need sunlight just like above ground plants. So a lot of things get suffocated and killed just by sand being stirred up.
0: So when you sort of uh, think about the future, and we've talked about these the incredible uses of sand and just how it makes our life um, better in so many ways and enables sort of like the migration out of the countryside to the city, which is happening on steroids. But then you see all like all these downsides and and this kind of mafia around sand. Is there an alternative? Is there something we could be doing better? Is there, you know, a way to like wean ourselves off sand? Have you thought of any sort of solutions here potentially?
2: Um, There are a lot of people, a lot of researchers all around the world looking at ways that we can use sand more efficiently or replace it. For instance, we could, you know, there's a lot of work being done on creating new forms of concrete that use less sand or that use other things instead of sand, like shredded bamboo or shredded waste plastic. But at the end of the day, we got to think of sand as just one more natural resource that we are over-consuming. Because again, sand is the most abundant thing on the planet. And if we're running out of that, which we are, then we're really in trouble.
0: Vince Beiser is the author of The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it Transformed civilization. Vince, thank you so much. Thanks. It was great being here. And one more thing here about sand, as if it wasn't desirable enough. It also turns out to be crucial to the creation of cutting-edge technology. We will have Vince Beiser explaining why there might not be a Silicon Valley if it weren't for sand. That's at innovationhub.org. In 1940 and 41, when German planes were dropping bombs on London, many Londoners tried to get away. Some went to the countryside, some left England entirely, but others, for a whole host of reasons, couldn't get out of the city. And their refuge had to be a little closer to home.
3: As a precaution against Germany's flying bomb, The city of London has opened five new and spacious underground shelters.
0: Many of these underground shelters were in the city's vast subway system. And lots of residents soon realized there was a stealth group sheltering with them. And it was awfully glad they had headed underground.
3: They've been studied in London and they were also famous for the fact that they were biting the people who took refuge there there during the Blitz, during the Second World War. So that's why people usually call it the London Underground Mosquito. But it lives everywhere, all, all over the world.
0: Evolutionary biologist Menno Skildhausen says this very special sort of mosquito arose specifically to feast on humans.
3: This is a a species of mosquito that seems to have evolved relatively recently. It's split off from an above-ground mosquito, but this one lives mostly underground and, and is mostly known from places that humans have created, from underground tubes, from cellars, from basements. And they have specialized in biting people feeding on human blood, whereas their ancestors were feeding on on birds.
0: Skildhausen is a senior research scientist at Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands, and he's the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. He says these mosquitoes are amazing examples of how something we think is slow and plodding and hard to see, evolution, can actually happen shockingly fast. The mosquitoes, as it turns out, didn't just change their food source or their habitat they changed their mating rituals just for us and their willingness to adapt to the weirdness of human cities doesn't end there
3: they have even more recent evolution which which causes them to be different in different metro tubes so these these underground mosquitoes that live in in one of the metro lines is is different, genetically different from the same species of underground mosquito that lives in a different subway line because these lines don't, uh, there's very little connection between them. So these mosquitoes in one line, they, they breed among themselves and they evolve differently from the ones in another line.
0: Though occasionally there will be interbreeding amongst mosquitoes who live on different lines of the London Tube. Scientists have studied this and concluded the only way this could happen is that mosquitoes transfer from one line to the other at Oxford Circus Station.
3: So I guess they do occasionally change trains, but uh, it happens rarely, and that prevents these different uh, sort of sub-breeds of mosquitoes from mixing and merging.
0: Skildhausen says when human cities move in, lots of animals and plants just disappear. But the ones that adapt are using the evolutionary processes that Darwin described. And a few lucky members of their species have mutations that help them survive city life. Those mutations quickly take over and spread through the gene pool. Something that hasn't just happened with mosquitoes.
3: So, for example, uh, blackbirds, which is a European bird species that you find in cities, they have differences in their DNA in many different genes, many different parts of the genome compared to the forest blackbirds, which also still exist. And another example is the, the, the famous peppered moth, these moths that became dark-winged during the Industrial Revolution yes. because they were better camouflaged against the, uh, the suitant trees.
0: They were in some biology textbook I had where there was a exactly. picture of like the yeah. whitish, but like you say, kind of speckly moth. But then as the air got darker and there was set all over the place, they got darker to blend in. So people wouldn't people or animals or whatever wouldn't be like, hmm, a white moth on a black background. That's easy to find.
3: Exactly. And that's what that's what a lot of birds were thinking, and they right. and they picked off the ones that were easily visible, and that caused the evolution of this this mutation. And we now know, since two years, which exactly which gene was involved. Hmm. Uh, it's a particular gene that is sort of a switch that changes the coloration of the wings of the of the moths. And they can actually calculate backwards by very uh, exact genetic analysis. When this mutation took place, and they pinpointed to 1819, which is exactly at the start of the Industrial Revolution. So that's a case where we can really study how that mutation took place, how it spread, and how it also disappeared. Because in the 1960s, 1950s, and 1960s, uh, the, the Clean Air Acts were introduced in in England and in the in the U.S. probably as well. Which forced factories to clean up their fumes, so the the trees became lighter again. The advantage of those dark-winged moths disappeared, and they became white again. So you see this this evolutionary seesaw taking place over one and a half centuries, which is which is beautiful. But it's it concerns only a single gene, so it's very very simple, very minimal evolution.
0: Do you think that the reason we think evolution takes a really long time is because we think about the evolution of people, but when you talk about something like bugs that live and die so quickly, they can iterate so fast and get to a more advantageous like form of themselves very quickly?
3: Yeah, that's a good point because, um, of course, the, the generation time, the time that it takes from one generation to the next is sort of the evolutionary clock speed, you could yeah, say. Evolution, yeah. you can only see the effect of natural selection in the next generation. If that next generation only appears 20 years later, then evolution works more slowly than if the next generation is there in a few months. So many insects have two or three generations per year, whereas humans reproduce about 100 times as slowly. So yes, many species that have these short generation times can evolve faster than we can.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Carol Miller. I'm talking to Menno Skildhausen, the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. So I've got to ask you about what, at least in the U.S., was a very sort of famous or notorious event. Uh, and it was the uh, Pictures beamed at least around this country of pizza rat um, in the New York subways this rat that was you know going through the subway with a slice of pizza as you do if you're a New Yorker and um, and I wonder how that picture struck you and what it said to you
3: well it's I mean it, it looks like there are similar pictures of you know a, a fox in in uh, in London standing in the street and it, Looking as if it's waiting for an ATM in a queue for the ATM. <laughs> so you have these 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 really funny pictures of urban animals that are behaving like 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 completely normal, sanguine urbanites. Right. Of course, in, in the case of the rats, yeah, they're really urban animals and they feed on human foods, uh, including pizza slices. And in a, in a few cases, we we actually know that they have evolved their digestive system to deal with this this new type type of food. There's a there's a, a, a mouse. Uh, also in New York, but not like the domestic mouse, but a wild mouse that lives in, in Central Park and in some of the other large parks in New York City, which has evolved since the time that it became marooned in those parks because it used to live, of course, in the forest that was there before the city was built. Since that time, they have evolved to suit the particular characteristics of the park that they live in. And in Central Park, that which is the most heavily visited park in New York City, that means that they have they have changed their digestive system to, to deal with very fatty foods, for example, and also with a toxin called aflatoxin, which is a toxin that is produced by fungi that grow on discarded peanuts because these these animals are, are not feeding on their natural diet anymore, but they're feeding on discarded peanuts and other junk food. And they have evolved. They have, by natural selection, changed their ability to deal with this completely different diet than they had been used to in the centuries before.
0: Hmm. And how does it work? Like, what is the mechanism by which um, a mouse that lives on sort of uh, pretty lean, natural stuff, out in the countryside somewhere, that that mouse comes to over, I don't know how what kind of period of time, um comes to live on donuts and you know peanuts that people drop and muffins and little bits of pizza like h- how mm-hmm. does that happen
3: yeah it's it's often we often say you know they evolved and natural selection did this or they adapted but it it really the nitty-gritty of the process is is sometimes very hard to dissect and to imagine in in the case of these mice you could imagine that the amount of let's say, natural food available and the amount of new food available was very skewed. There was very little natural food and there was a lot of human-generated food. So any mouse that had a mutation that allowed it to deal with this new food, which the the old-fashioned mice may have got sick from, for example, and died, any mouse that has a mutation that allows it to survive on this new food, would be able to produce more offspring, which would spread that particular mutation, that gene. And over generations, this process would happen over and over again, leading to these new mutations, these changed genes from taking over the gene pool of these old mice. And the mouse itself, the population, would slowly change bit by bit so that the new mice that are living there now are completely different from the ones that were living there to begin with.
0: Right. 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 And it's interesting because we talk about the process of evolution as if it's kind of neat and orderly. But what it feels like is that you're saying that a species survival, especially when humans come to town and are like, things are different now. um, It's really all down to like the luck that in a population, you've got a few moths that are dark when soot starts filling the air. And and if there just weren't a few that were different that could like fill that vacuum, they'd be done. They'd just be right.
3: Yeah, they'd be done, or or they'd have to wait for the same process to happen somewhere else, where there where there is such a mutant, and then recolonizing this place where they have gone extinct. So yeah, it's really uh, largely down to luck. But of course, if you're talking about small animals, insects, plants, you're really talking about millions and millions of of animals. And every one of those has a few mutations. So the chance that there's one or two of them in there that have the right mutations at some point becomes becomes large enough for this process to happen. But it's still very, very unpredictable. We don't know whether a species will be able to evolve, how it will do that, whether it's going to be sustainable. It's, it's, it's always a surprise.
0: Uh, you wrote a, an op-ed uh, a, a few years back in um, a Dutch national newspaper, and you were like, you know, things are changing all the time. There's evolution. And so trying to preserve how things were in, you know, 1700 or 1500 is kind of artificial, right? Because the you could choose any time period to make things, you know, the same as they were then, but why particularly do that? Um Explain the, the pushback to that and, and, and uh, like, the reaction to that and, like, what that tells you about the conflict within us about nature versus people.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a f- sort of nature conservation is a very complex topic because people tend to think of individual species. We tend to think of preserving a particular species but you know nature is like it's it's like a it's like a pie there's the 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 food that is generated by the sun that is generated by by photosynthesizing plants is a fixed amount and all the species have to have to to the whole ecosystem has to run on that energy when i when i say nature is evolving nature is changing and we see this happening in in, in cities especially of course what i mean is that I don't think we should use that as an excuse to, to convert the environment into a completely human-dominated area, but that we should rather focus on preserving a well-functioning rich ecosystem and not worry so much on ex- about exactly which species are living in that ecosystem.
0: Menno Skildhausen is a professor of evolutionary biology at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he's the author of Darwin Comes to Town, How the Urban Jungle Drives Evolution. Menno, thank you so much.
3: Thank you very much.
0: We've got another fascinating story of adaptation at our website. It's about a couple of species of fish that somehow figured out how to live alongside toxic chemicals, PCBs in some ways their resistance to toxins is a good thing in other ways not so much we've got more at innovationhub.org thanks to the people who helped put together this show associate producers mark solinger and mark filipino and engineer doug sugars from pri and wgbh radio i'm Kara miller and this is innovation hub
2: pri
3: public radio international